So, this morning we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 12 to 18. So please turn there if you have a Bible or an app. So, as you're probably aware by now, uh, we're going through a series in 2 Corinthians, so this is kind of running parallel to our series in Acts. Um, and this is part of what we're calling our preaching lab. Uh, so this is Nathan and Vickers and myself who are essentially training um, in the role of preaching, uh, which is which is really cool. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us. Um, okay, <laughs> cool, good adjustment. Um, so we're calling it a preaching lab, not not because it's trying to be too experimental or um, trying to blow anything up, but just because it is for us to uh, to learn and, and to, to have a bit of feedback on that. Um, so what I want to do first is give you just a quick summary. I know it's a long time between sermons in the series, so I'll just give you a quick summary of what's going on in the wider picture of Second Corinthians and what um, Nathan and Vickers preached on. So the overall setting here is that Paul is defending his apostolic ministry. And we see these super apostles coming in. That's what the, that's the name he gives them in chapter 11. And these super apostles were teachers who relied on credentials and other external things to make them appear important. They would have been through a lot of training. And they had these letters of recommendation from the synagogues. So they, these were respected, respected men. But ultimately what they were teaching was a distorted gospel. So they were saying that not only did you need the grace of Jesus, but you also needed to be circumcised and you also needed to follow the Jewish customs. And Paul refers to them elsewhere as false apostles or even servants of Satan. So there's a big, a big battle going on here. And this is in direct contrast with the teaching that we see from Paul. So Paul was being discredited as an apostle and he had to defend his ministry. So it's a ministry based on human effort, external change. This is based on the old covenant versus the ministry of the spirit and the gospel renewal. And this is the fruit of the new covenant. So a few months back, Nathan preached on what marks are present in a church or a ministry that is based on the new covenant as opposed to the old. And then a few weeks back, Vickers compared the glory of the Old Covenant with the glory of the New. The Old Covenant, the glory was fading and has been surpassed. And the glory of the New Covenant is permanent. And it achieves what the Old Covenant never could, of course, which is eternal life through the Spirit. Just going to make some more adjustments here. So we're here this morning and we're going to see that Paul continues this comparison between the Old Covenant and the New. And so he moves from the glory of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant through to the result of the New Covenant for the believer. So the question is, what happens to someone who is part of the New Covenant with God? How does it differ for an Israelite under the Old Covenant? So let's look at our text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. Shall we pray as we seek God in in this? Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Lord, we were once far off, and Lord, we uh, are sinners, and Lord, we had no hope of of salvation. But Lord, um, you came and you you reached down and you you plucked us out. Lord, you set our feet on firm ground, and and Lord, you gave us um, you gave us a heart, you gave us a spirit, um, you made us responsive to your calling. Um, and Lord, you've you've guaranteed us eternal life. Um, Lord, as we look at this uh, text this morning and and look at what it means to be under the new covenant, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us. Um, pray that we would, even now, Lord, that we would be able to behold your glory. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this passage we see Paul basing his ideas on a veil. And understanding what a veil symbolizes is going to be key to understanding the wider text this morning. And if we think about it, we see veils pop up in a lot of different places. So if you have a high-end car maker, they'll release a new model. What happens? They'll start off, it'll be veiled, right? It's a teaser, you can't see it. And then they'll have a ceremony. They'll whip the veil off and everyone can see what the car is. Same thing if you have a a new monument or a statue or something like that. You have an unveiling ceremony. A bride at a wedding traditionally would wear a veil over her face. And then, of course, when they're pronounced husband and wife, the veil is removed. And within religion, it's very widespread. So a lot of people would know that Muslim women wear a hijab or a... um, can't remember the other word for it now. Very controversial in recent years. Um, some countries in Europe have banned the wearing of burqas. That's the one I was looking for. In public spaces. Um, other religions too. So Jews uh, would wear veils in a number of uh, scenarios. Eastern Orthodox churches. Catholic nuns. It's a type of veil. Um, even Hindu faith as well. So veils pop up everywhere. Uh, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look back at Exodus to see where the veil was first used. And this is what is referred to in uh, the text from Second Corinthians here. So in Exodus, we see that Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he receives the law directly from God. And this is the Old Covenant. So remember, the Old Covenant was the law given to Moses. And the, the law, the covenant, promised that if Israel kept the law, then they would be able to live long in the land, which was, of course, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And on the contrary, if Israel did not keep the old covenant, the law, then they would be exiled from the land. And, of course, that's what happened. So in chapter 33 of Exodus, we see Moses asking to see the glory of the Lord. But God says to him that no one can look on his glory and live. 
No one can look at his face. So what happens? God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand so that as God passes by and removes his hand, Moses only sees the tail end of God's glory. And after this episode, Moses comes down the mountain. This is into chapter 34. And what's happening? His face is shining. And this is after God has spoken with him. And what we've seen in a couple of examples recently is that people's faces shine when they see the glory of God. So last week we heard um, in Acts uh, chapter 7, I hope that's right. Um, So Jono preached on the martyrdom of Stephen, and Stephen, it says that his face was like that of an angel's just before he was going to be stoned. Right, and and if you look at angels themselves, often angels appear in bright, glorious light. It's always light shining. A few weeks earlier, Vickers talked about the transfiguration, where Jesus's whole body glowed, not just his face. And so, in each case, we see that the glowing, the shining, is a result of being in the glory of God. This isn't Suzanne Paul natural glow kind of stuff. <laughs> um, if you remember that. This is, this is being in the presence of God. <laughs> Nothing against natural glow. It's, um, I'm sure it's a great product. <laughs> and in the case of Moses, we see the Israelites are afraid. So Moses has a shining face. They're afraid of him. And so Moses puts a veil over his face to protect the Israelites from the glory of God reflected in him. Remember that not long before this episode, Moses came down the mountain and he found the Israelites had made a golden calf, right? They decided that God, you know, Moses had disappeared up the mountain. We're going to make a God for ourselves. So Aaron helped them to make a golden calf. And in response, Moses ordered that 3,000 of them were slaughtered, right? So that's the judgment. So they're very keenly aware that God's judgment is on them. They know they're sinners. They know about God's judgment. So we can understand why they're afraid. So the veil here was a necessary barrier to protect those people from the glory of God. But what Paul says in our passage this morning is that the veil is no longer needed. And he points instead to the work of the Spirit, which replaces it. So this morning what I want to do is focus on Three contrasts between what the veil did and what the Spirit does. So number one, the veil obscures while the Spirit reveals. So verse 13, it says, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What does that mean? It's a a bit of a confusing sentence. It's hard to know exactly what this means, but What we see earlier in the chapter is that Paul is making the point that the old covenant was temporary and it was being done away with. It was being brought to an end. So right from the moment that it was instituted, it was fading in glory. It was fading in relevance. And it was making way for the glorious new covenant, which we see prophesied right through the Old Testament. So what what was it that was being brought to an end? The old covenant, the glory of the old covenant. So the veil, in a way, obscured what the outcome of the Old Covenant was going to be for the Israelites. To them, the covenant was, this was given from Moses, this was the final word. To them, this was the fullness of the glory of God. They couldn't handle the glory that the Old Covenant came with. But they couldn't see the 
bigger picture, right? They couldn't see that a better, newer covenant was coming. And Paul goes on to say that in Corinthians that the same is true of the descendants of Israel in his day. And in particular, these super apostles that he's opposed to. So even now that the old covenant had been superseded, Christ came, Christ lived, he ministered, he gave signs, he did miracles, wonders, he died on the cross as prophesied, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, all this stuff has happened, he's given the Holy Spirit to believers, and in doing so, inaugurated the new covenant. But even with all of that, the majority of the Israelites still had this veil, and they could not see Jesus as the Christ. So they were still trying to live by the terms of the old covenant, even though it had failed. Romans 10 verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So seeking righteousness by fulfilling the law has ended. That's what Christ did. That's his work. And Christ fulfilled that work for us. And that's why it's no longer needed. So the Israelites are veiled. They can't see Christ for who he is. So one thing, just by way of analogy, one thing that we do each year as a family is we try and go skiing. right? And so often you go there and the weather is beautiful. You go up the mountain, you can see hundreds of kilometers. You can see Mount Cook from Queenstown. right? Often it's like that. And what happens when it's like that? You can see where you're trying to get to. You can make sure that you don't ski past the bottom of the lift and have to walk all the way back up again. You can see the bumps and dips in the snow, so you can you can ski fast and you can ski confidently. All right? But sometimes the cloud comes in, and it's a completely different story when that happens. So you would know, even if you haven't been skiing, that snow is white and cloud is white. So that means that you're looking and you can't actually see what is in front of you. You don't know whether you're looking at air or at snow or ice or something else. And so what happens, you can't, you can't actually see your destination. You can't see how to get there. And more so, you can't see how the mountain actually is arranged. So you can't see how to get over there to get on that lift to go over there. Right? You're just dealing with what's right in front of you. And the result is that it's slow and it's tiring and it's very easy to trip up. Even an experienced skier like me, it's hard work. So this is the same thing as a veil. right? We need to see Jesus for who he really is and what he accomplished for us. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Otherwise we will be groping in the fog as, as we're lost. And this explains why even with so many miracles, resurrections from the dead, compelling teaching, thousands of disciples transformed by the work of the Spirit, most of the Jews and the teachers of the law still would not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And you know, one of the things that we've noticed as we've gone through the book of Acts, um, discussing in community group, you know, you look at this group of Jews in the Sanhedrin, right? And there are just clear signs everywhere. They even say at one stage, we cannot deny that this miracle has taken place. But still, they do not recognize Jesus. It's a veil. Now, a quick little note here, um, if you might have picked up. Um, Did Moses intentionally veil the plan of salvation from the Israelites so they wouldn't be saved? 
After all, Paul says in verse 13, we are not like Moses because we preach a gospel that is free from a veil or from obscurity. But we have to see here that the fault is not with Moses. Moses was simply doing what his calling was to do, which was to mediate the law, to receive the law, to pass it on to the Israelites. The fault was with the Israelites themselves. They were the ones in idolatry. They were the ones in sin. They were the ones who could not bear to look on the glory of God. So the veil was actually a necessity under the old covenant. And more than that, it was actually a means of grace. Right? It protected the Israelites. It was mercy for them so that the judgment of God would not come on them as directly. So let us not think that it is Moses here that, that Paul is railing against and saying that he led the Israelites astray. That's not what's happening. So instead of this veil of obscurity that we see, uh, we have the Spirit. right? And the Spirit reveals the glory of God in Christ. So again, we, as we've gone through Acts, we've seen that at Pentecost, the Spirit comes for the first time to all believers. And what happened? The apostles preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The Spirit revealed to them the glory of God as in the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. And, and they start making all these connections. They say, oh, Old Testament, look, this relates to Christ. Look at this thing over here. This relates to Christ. All of a sudden, everything becomes very clear to them. These are the same apostles who were disciples under Jesus, and, and time after time, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was happening. When the Spirit comes, their eyes are open. The veil is lifted. They can see Christ for who he is. One of the wonderful things about doing the Bible study or or mentoring with a new believer is to see this process happening. Right? You see, all of a sudden, the dots start getting connected. You start reading through the Old Testament or, or parts of the New, and you say, that links to this, that links to this. And, and what's happening is the Spirit is illuminating the text. The Spirit is illuminating the Word and helping them to see Christ through it. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verses 4 and 5, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul is saying it hasn't always been like this. The glory of God was hidden to the Israelites, but now there's nothing hidden about God's plan of salvation. It's there, plain to see, for all. So, the veil obscures, but the Spirit reveals. Number two, the veil separates, while the Spirit unites. So, if we could, if we could whittle down the function of the veil to one thing, this would probably be it. The veil separates us from God. So, in the story of Moses, we see the separation of the sinful people from the holy God. And, and his mediator, Moses. And again, emphasize this was necessary at the time to protect the people from God's glory, which they could not withstand. And this concept of the veil doesn't just stop with Moses, but it's actually continued right through the Old Testament. Uh, and the way that's done is through the curtain or the veil within the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. So the layout of the 
tabernacle and, and the temple was very similar, was that you'd have a large outer court, and this was open air with a, with a curtain around it. And then inside the tent, the first place you'd go into was the holy place. So the holy place was only priests could go in there, only the Levites, and this is where they would go and they would um, complete complete their rituals, right? So they had to had to put the bread out and they had to do these other things. But beyond the holy place was another area called the holy of holies, and this was also referred to as the inner sanctuary. Okay, and this was only entered by one priest once per year. This is the holy. This is the high priest. And each year it was the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And he would go in there to offer the blood of sacrifice onto the mercy seat. Now this this inner sanctuary, this Holy of Holies, this was where God's glory dwelt. Okay, This was a symbol of God's glory that the Israelites, apart from the high priest, could not enter. So what separated the holy place from the holy of holies? A veil. A curtain. This isn't just a a veil like a bridal veil that you can kind of see through. This is a thick curtain. It's heavy. right? And this veil symbolized the separation between God and his people. So if we think about a wedding, right? We have the bride with her veil. What does that symbolize? Symbolizes that before they're married, the bride is separated from her groom. Okay? And so then, as soon as they're pronounced husband and wife, the veil is lifted, the two become one, everyone watches awkwardly as they kiss. It's what happens at a wedding. And it's the same thing. And incidentally, what else, what else was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant contained, among other things, it contained the two stone tablets that Moses received. So this is the Old Covenant. This is the law. And the fact that the Old Covenant is, is housed here in the Holy of Holies, it's significant. It shows us that God keeps his covenant in perfect holiness. Shows that he is perfect, that he, yeah, that this is a covenant that comes from him. But it also shows that for the Israelites, keeping the covenant was out of reach. They couldn't get there. They couldn't actually free themselves from sin to be able to maintain the terms of the covenant. And so it was out of bounds. It was in the Holy of Holies, unapproachable. So Paul says that we have the Holy Spirit instead who unites us with God through the work of Christ. Matthew 27.51, the curtain in the temple, that big thick curtain that we talked about before, the veil that separates was torn in two from top to bottom. So the Holy of Holies is now accessible, not just to the high priest, not just to the Levites, but to all who believe. And of course, no longer is the presence of God just within the temple, but it's with the Holy Spirit who dwells in all who believe. Um, and I recommend if you haven't um, already to listen to the sermon last week because it talks, John, I talked a lot about um, about where the presence of God dwells. Um, it's very, very encouraging and um, informative sermon. 
Again, Hebrews 10 verse 20, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So how is this all possible? Because the new covenant is God's gift to us, meaning it doesn't depend on us maintaining the law in full obedience. And Let's just be clear here. We're not saying that we are any less sinful than the Israelites. Okay, if anything, we might be more sinful. But the difference here is that the old covenant did not come with a means of grace. The new covenant does. So in the old covenant, the separation remained when sin was present. But the work of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross guarantees forgiveness for those who believe. So, the veil obscures and the Spirit reveals. The veil separates and the Spirit unites. Thirdly, the veil hardens while the Spirit sanctifies. Verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Notice that Paul repeats himself almost word for word the next couple of verses he says yes to this day whenever Moses is read a veil lies over their hearts but when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed so Paul here is emphasizing the fact that just as the Israelites at Mount Sinai had a physical veil between them and the glory that was on Moses face most of the modern day Israelites had what Paul calls a metaphorical veil I'm calling it a metaphorical veil. He describes it as a veiling of the heart and of the mind. So what does it mean to have a hardened heart or a hardened mind? A hard heart is one that is essentially unresponsive to the calling of God. Perhaps the best known example of this, of course, is Pharaoh. So earlier in the book of of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh was called through Moses to let God's people go. Release them from Egypt. But what happened? His heart was hardened and he disobeyed. He did not uh, respond to the call of God. And the same thing is said of the Israelites right through the Old Testament. Instead of repenting and turning to God whenever they sinned and they failed to keep the Old Covenant, the Bible says that they repeatedly hardened their hearts. They did not respond. They persisted in their sin and in their idolatry. And and as well as this, we see that God longs for the Israelites to have open hearts, to have soft hearts towards him. Um, and it didn't happen apart from a few pockets here and there. Psalm 95 verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness. But we see intertwined throughout Israel's failure to keep the old covenant, we see intertwined the promise that God himself will give a new heart to those who believe. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart, it's prophesied, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this is the promise of the new covenant. And this is why it's so much more glorious than the old covenant. Do you see the difference here? That now if we sin, Our hearts don't have to be hardened towards God. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is mercy. What is it like for us when we have a heart of flesh? It means that if we sin, when we sin, 
we're all still sinners, we repent. We turn back to God. We thank him for his mercy and his grace. And instead of growing further apart from him, the opposite actually happens. We grow closer to him. The spirit works in us to mature us, to grow us, to bring us closer to him and to change us to be more like Christ. And this is what we call sanctification, right? So theology, we have justification. So this is when justification is when the work of Christ on the cross, forgiveness of sins is applied to us and that can't be undone. And then from then on, we have sanctification. So the life of the believer becoming more Christ-like, growing in holiness. We, we sin less. And when we sin, we repent. Have you seen this? Have you seen this in the life of a new believer? Have you seen this in your own life? As we draw nearer to God through the process of confessing, repenting our sin, trusting him more, understanding the gospel more fully, we suddenly find ourselves less dominated by that sin. And we see the love of God moving through us, more evident in our lives and in the fruit of the Spirit. And this, ultimately, this is one of the ways that we know that we're Christians. Not that we stop sinning, but that in response to our sin, we rely more on Christ and his spirit. So rather than our hearts becoming harder and moving further away from him. And this is why every time we come to say communion, we say this is not for you if you have had a great week. This is not for you if you're doing really well and you don't need God. This is for you if you're a sinner. This is for you if you need mercy, if you need grace. That's what it's there for. That's the new covenant. So there's a question here for us. How do we respond when we sin? Do we feel like we need to go out and try harder next time? Do we need to make a stronger resolution? No. We need to be on our knees before Christ. We need to ask him for forgiveness. We need to... We need to tell him that we do not have what it takes to make it right ourselves, but that he does. This whole process of sanctification is summarized beautifully for us in verse 18, one of the, one of the great verses in the Bible. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So instead of the Pharisee way, which was to be sanctified through improving our efforts and increasing the number of laws that we're following, sanctification comes from within, the Spirit who dwells within each one of us. Again, there's repetition here. We see that the Lord is the Spirit, is repeated from the previous verse. And notice here how Paul brings the Trinity together. So we have... The, we have the Spirit who, um, sorry, what am I saying? <laughs> uh, lost my place there. So, th- sorry, through the Spirit, Christ takes the veil away, and through the Spirit, we are able to respond to God. So this means that for us, we, like Moses, reflect the glory of God. Right, that might that might seem a bit a bit extreme for you. That maybe you say, oh, "I'm not quite at, at Moses yet." You know, maybe I'm a bit further down here. But this is what it's saying: we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
We reflect the glory of God. Some versions actually use that word reflecting the glory of God instead of behold. And, and both are happening here. As we behold God's glory, we cannot remain unchanged by it. And although we don't have a physical glow like it says that Moses does, a transformation within our lives is a glow in a world out there where there is a lot of darkness. So then, how do we behold the glory of the Lord? Reading the word, praying, thanking God, meditating on his glory. These are all good things. But what else? What about what we're doing here this morning? We sing together. We worship God in song. Beholding the glory of God. Hearing the word preached together. Beholding the glory of God. Corporate prayer. Beholding the glory of God. Reading the word from the front as a church. Beholding the glory of God. Taking the Lord's Supper. Beholding the glory of God. Meeting together during the week for fellowship, for community. Opening the word, praying for each other. This is all beholding the glory of God. Notice that Paul doesn't say, and we each with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, but and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So, be with God's people as often as you can. It's good for us. As we close, I want to read one of my favorite passages, which um, links in very nicely to uh, what I've been preaching on today. And that's from Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. And this it, it just throws into contrast the old covenant and its, its community and the new covenant and what it's like for us today. So I'll read this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers big that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Shall we pray?